Welcome to Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. In this episode, Alternative Paths to Belonging. Today, the Odeeb crew speaks with two people who started their careers in law before breaking the mold. Margaret Segretti and Sam Choi each took a chance on roles that wouldn't traditionally be filled by lawyers and found belonging in the process. Traditional can look different. Traditional can be different. Non-traditional isn't as scary as everyone says, and it can be really fulfilling. Margaret and Sam open up about the times where they felt stuck and how they marketed themselves to create new opportunities. There were just a lot of walls and a lot of doors that were closing. So instead, I started to focus on, okay, what are the needs of the group that I have right now? Margaret and Sam are also data and machine learning experts with firsthand experience of the challenges to mitigating bias in AI tools. The most important part of creating this type of data is having one, a diverse group of people, and not only a diverse group of people and culture and things like that, but also subject matter as well, so that people are able to see the data, not from only the perspective that they know, but from perspective that they won't know at all. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's your host, Tanya Martinez-Galanucci. Welcome back to Building Belonging. I'm really excited about this episode because we're going to be talking about belonging in a way that I think is different than we've talked about in the past. I think a lot of times when we're discussing belonging on the podcast, it's about trying to work with what you have finding belonging where you are, and making changes, whether it's in your frame of mind, your behavior, but it still assumes you're in the same place you probably started. And sometimes that's not where you're going to find belonging, right? Sometimes you need to uproot and find a place that will nourish you so that those behaviors, those frame shifts, the way you're thinking, acting, or doing things are actually received and foster the outcomes you're hoping to see. And today we're going to be talking about belonging when you have to figure it out and find it somewhere else. Today we're going to talk about alternative paths to your career, considering if you have a JD or entered into the profession thinking you might be a lawyer of some sort in some way, shape, or form. I am a perfect poster child for this because while I worked really hard to find belonging within the legal industry in a more traditional way, and I have, I, I don't want to make it seem like I didn't find it ever. I think I found pockets of belonging within a traditional workplace within the legal industry, but it's nothing compared to what I found now where I really am bringing my full self all of my talents, my creativity, and also just allowed to be flexible still and evolve because I don't think I'm the same person I am even just a year ago. And so we're really excited to get this conversation started with some friends from Bloomberg who will introduce themselves in a bit. But we think that this is going to be part of a much larger conversation. And we were really interested in learning about other people's potential alternative career paths. So with that, I'm Tanya Martinez-Galanucci. I'm going to hand it over to my team. Thanks, Tanya. I'm Angie Avila-Lanciati. As our listeners already know, I am the Development and Communications Manager with The Office. I'm going to toss it over to Mary Ellen. I'm Mary Ellen LaRosa, the Senior Diversity Coordinator for ODEB, and I'm going to pass this over to our guests, Margaret and Sam. Could you tell us a little bit about yourselves and tell us what does belonging mean to you? Hi, everyone. My name is Sam Choi. I am currently working at Bloomberg in the Legal Data Analysis Group with Margaret, who will also introduce herself. My background. So I was a tax attorney for six years before coming to this group that I'm in right now. And the work that I'm doing right now is totally different from what I did prior to coming to Bloomberg. I was reaching out to administrative agencies, doing a lot of state and local tax work, a lot of legal research. And right now, I think a lot of what we do is you know, thinking about how machines can assist attorneys do their day-to-day -day jobs right now. Yeah, that's kind of just me. I'll pass it to Margaret. I'm Margaret. I am head of a department here that supports Bloomberg Law, Bloomberg Tax, and Bloomberg Government. 
When I think about how I got here, it is a windy road. I am an attorney by, I don't know, teaching, practice, schooling, but that's not really what I wanted to do when I graduated from law school. Traditionally, yes, I did go practice a law firm. I actually went into the state court system, but I knew it wasn't for me. And I knew I wanted to do something different. And so I saw an opportunity here at Bloomberg and I couldn't pass it up. It was building a legal research product when there wasn't another player on the market. And so I came here to see what being at a, at a startup was all about in a big company. And it's been a journey. I was an analyst, much like Sam. I became a team leader, manager, and about five or six years ago, became head of the department. I don't think I ever set out for this, nor did I expect this when I went to law school. But I think when you're in the field of data and when you talk about being a lawyer, it's one of the most important things that brings both of those things together. I know the other question was, what does belonging mean to you? And when I think of belonging, I think about it from like all sorts of aspects. I think about it from the idea of like skill sets. We want everyone who especially is not in a traditional career in data to feel like they belong. I think about it in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, whatever and however you show up every day, both the external and internal. Really, you feel like this is a place you can come and be yourself. And I think about it from background. It's not just what you look like or how you're made up, but really where you've come from and can you bring all of that? And so that's really what I think of when I think of belonging. Yeah, I should answer that too. Let me answer that. Belonging to me. I also thought of this maybe too existentially. I don't know, but I was thinking of it as everything that Margaret said as well. But I think the most important things for me were being understood and being supported, especially in a workplace. I think a lot of people say in a workplace, you're just there to do work. But I think a lot of it is we unconsciously or consciously bring a lot of ourselves to work. And there's a lot of differences, a lot of things that we think, a lot of cultural things that we may have experienced that may be misunderstood or may maybe clash with some people. And I think the most important part of feeling understood is just, are we intentionally trying to be together, be trying to at least understand each other? And then the second part is feeling supported in all of that. Maybe we might not completely understand. Maybe we might not completely know even how to approach a subject matter or a cultural value or things like that. But at least we're all there to support each other, to see each other succeed. And I thought, yeah, those two things were the most important parts of belonging to me. Thank you both for sharing all of that. And I'm going to hand it over to Angie in a bit with her first question. But I just wanted to reflect on something you said, Sam, uh, because I feel like the paradigm of people going to work just to work and leaving everything else at home has shifted so much uh, in our society and in and so many of these spaces. And it's a huge generational difference that we're seeing. Gen Z, again, this is huge generalization and speaking in broad strokes, but their expectations of the workplace is not that work is just where you work. Work is where you bring your whole self if you want to, if that's something, and other supports. And, and we think about American society, for instance, and how much of our basic needs of being rely on where we work. Whether you have health insurance matters if you have a job. Of course, it's interconnected and more complex. So it's really interesting to hear how these paradigms have shifted over time and how we see them continuing to shift. So thank you for, for flagging that. And I'll hand it over to Angie. Thanks, Tanya. And thank you both for joining us today. Uh, Margaret, I want to dissect what you just said a bit more. You mentioned that you did not anticipate practicing laws. What drew you to attend law school and pursue a law degree? What drew me to law school? So many things. My parents are lawyers. I like the idea of learning and really being able to use analytical skills. So that drew me to law school. Not really having a direction drew me to law school. It's a degree that you can do some stuff with. 
there is like a wide variety of things that I think led me there. Did I think I'd end up here? No. To manage a data group just wasn't on my bingo card. When I think about what we what I would be doing now, it probably didn't even cross my mind to think of an alternative career and much less one in data. That wasn't even a thought back when I went to law school, nor was it something even maybe five years ago people would have considered. I've been at Bloomberg for almost 17 years. And to think that an alternative career still involving my legal degree was something that I kind of stumbled into is kind of amazing. And that's just not where I thought I'd end up. I still wonder every day, what do I want to be when I grow up? I struggle with that. But you know, it's this atmosphere here that's really kept me engaged and kept me using my skills as a lawyer that brings me back every day. I'm challenged. I'm thoughtful, engaged. I think about lawyers every day. And to me, now I think that I'm in the right place. I just didn't know I was going to get here. Thank you so much for that very honest answer. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about our Thurgood Marshall summer law internship students and how some of our participants apply for the internship because of what they watch on TV. They watch movies and they're like, lawyers, fun. And they're inspired by television and movies. And then some other are of our participants They join because they are looking for something to do in the summer and they don't really know what being attorney or a lawyer means and they don't really know what it is going into it. So I love that we're talking about this because I think for our office, a big focal point this upcoming summer is to really share with our interns that being in a top 100 law firm or being an attorney isn't the only route when it comes to studying law. So thank you so much for that honest answer. And it is still very much the same. Students still feel that way. And I still don't know what I want to be when I I grow up. So I think that is a common thought across the board. And we should ask Sam the same question. So Sam, what brought you to law and where did you think you were going to end up? So we can just start learning each of your trajectories. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the good old parents. They were like, hey, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer. And my cousin became a doctor. I mean, well, try to become a doctor and I try to become a lawyer. And ironically, I'm not practicing law. I definitely had an interest in working with technology. And while I was practicing as an attorney, that's kind of where I went down, working with technology. I wanted to automate things. And so at a certain point, there wasn't enough, I guess, structure and knowledge base to learn there. So I was like, I need to leave. But if I could do it all over again, I think if I want to get here faster, I would have become like a software engineer or studied like computer science. But I think I don't regret becoming a lawyer because all the skills that I've learned in law school, practicing law, and now being here has prepared me to be here and do well. But yeah, just I'm happy where I landed because I am working with technology. I definitely have all the outside things that I want, like work-life balance and things like that. But yeah, to that point of what do I want to be when I grow up? I wish I knew. I, don't, I, I still don't know. Maybe one day. One day I'll know. <laughs> the way you phrase it and talk about it really resonates with me, Sam, because like you, I guess different from you was that I wanted to be a lawyer is what I thought I needed to be especially because I was really interested in thinking about a more equitable and just society. And I think I share this with you when we first met. Growing up poor, being first gen, being Latina, all those things influenced my decision in going into law for the purpose of creating change. But once I entered almost immediately, not even almost, like immediately entering law school, I was just like, no, not what I thought. (laughs) Not what I thought it was going to be. I am now gathering a ton of debt. I am now going to have to work my booty off because I went straight into big law, which is very common when you go to Columbia Law School. You end up in big law unless you are really special or have some other backup plan or generational wealth. Name your thing that's going to allow you to do something else. I didn't have any of them. And it went from bad to worse real quick for me, where like my original 
goals and alignment for why I wanted to become a lawyer really shifted. But here I am now, many years later, and I am doing what I set out to do. I'm thinking about justice and equality. I'm thinking about the educational system, thinking about lawyers' roles. I didn't realize that I would have to stop practicing as a lawyer to do it, though. And so that was a huge hurdle for me, like a mental hurdle. And thank God for therapy and coaching, because I don't know if I would have gotten there by myself. And I was wondering if either of you had any thoughts about what it takes and what it means to kind of shift gears and take a different path. And sometimes, and in your case, Margaret, it sounds like a completely uncharted path. Like, it's not like there was something laid out for you. You said it was sort of like being in a startup in this huge company. So I was wondering if either of you had thoughts or both of you had thoughts. I'm happy to go. When I think about just in general, what all of this means and how to change a mindset that really gets ingrained to you for three years, and there's all this pressure to go into law firms and to fit kind of a mold. I think sometimes it's still like an insecurity when people say, what do you do? And I say, I'm manager of a data organization, but I went to law school. And I think that's an insecurity sometimes that comes out. I didn't do a traditional path long-term. People don't understand what we do. And so I think that's really hard to explain on a day-to-day basis. But I feel confident in the decisions I made but it doesn't fit your traditional path, thoughts of a lawyer. And I think that's where people sometimes judge. And so just to keep my mindset as confident and as is, I have to really love what I do and why I come to work and remember the purpose that I have every day. And I think that's what drives me a lot of times. But I do think it's a mind shift that also comes with some insecurity and confidence and things like that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's easier for people to like digest, oh, I'm a lawyer. And then people are like, oh, I kind of know what you do instead of, oh, I'm a project manager and I work with software engineers to create machines to do all these things. And they're like, I have no idea what, you talk, what you're talking, right? So even now, it's easier for me to be like, oh, yeah, what do I do? I'm a lawyer. And with that said, it's just, I think I find going back to the original question of knowing and things like that, I felt like I stumbled into a lot of the things that I wanted to do. And I think that's something that I didn't realize even now. I could have, like, I think it's easier when I knew, oh, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to get a job and do all these things. But most of the time I was just like, oh, I'll go to law school. And then, oh, I stumbled into this subject matter. Oh, I'm stumbling into this next job. I'm stumbling into the next job. And then in retrospect, you're like, oh, all these decisions made sense. And then now I'm here where I'm supposed to be. But in the moment, I'm just like, what am I supposed to do with my life and have an identity crisis? So it's just like a very interesting thought project. In the moment, it's difficult. But in retrospect, it's all made sense. Yeah. And I think it sounds like for both of you and even for myself, all of the previous experiences build your knowledge base. So like the job, or career path that you have now looks very different from the one you could have when you first graduated from law school. Like you have a different set of skills and different expertise that you can use. And that's what's one of the things that allows, I think, lawyers to have alternative career paths. You can, you're going to find lawyers everywhere, in every sector, in any organization, In any aspect of our society, lawyers are involved. And I know that for me, that has allowed me to have the flexibility to bring in some of that expertise that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise been able to bring in had I stood a more traditional, quote unquote, traditional course. And I'm so glad, Margaret, that you mentioned that sometimes there's even insecurity around what those choices are and what you even call yourself, because I think at least my take on this is I'd be interested in yours. The legal profession is very traditional. It's not one that's just like open and new and wants things to develop and change at a rapid pace. No, the whole industry, the whole framework for how we even interpret law is rooted in looking at the past and not straying too far 
from that. So it's an interesting place to be innovative and forward looking if that's not what you're trying to be. And um, Sam, to your point, when I have to say what I do, this is not my third career, and I work very much within the legal industry and with lawyers. I am a lawyer, but I'm not a practicing lawyer. That's a lot to explain. So it just depends for me, like how involved I want to get in the situation. Is this someone I'm meeting and never going to talk to again? Then I'm a lawyer. If I'm giving a presentation, then I'll explain what my role is. So I think something that came up and I think is very connected to what we were just talking about is one of the ways you can find an alternative path is through marketability. And Sam, this question was inspired sort of through your experiences and how you use marketability to kind of guide your choices. And we were wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that and give um, our listeners some insights in case they're thinking about making a shift or a jump. Yeah, for sure. So um, I think it starts with, um, I didn't go to one of those like top 14, top 10 law schools. So I knew like, I mean, or at least the word on the street was just that it's not going to be very easy to get a job right out of law school. So my first thought was, what is a subject matter that people don't want to do at all? And can I do it? So that's why I picked tax. I saw that one, not many people were taking it. And then people were like struggling through these concepts. And I was like, okay, this seems like doable. And it also helped that I was doing well in these tax classes. And I just started taking as many tax classes as I could. I even thought about getting the infamous NYU tax LLM that every tax person gets. But thankfully, during my second year of law school, I did get a job for a tax position. And so I think in that sense, I was marketing myself. I knew a path that I needed to take. How do I get there? I think after getting the job and like now that I'm in my career, my idea of marketability has changed a lot because when I tried to do that, like rinse and repeat process while during my career, like there were just a lot of walls and a lot of doors that were closing. So instead, I started to focus on, okay, what are the needs of the group that I have right now? I, I got into the state and local tax group. A big need was tax preparation. And even though I was a lawyer, I felt very quite humbled because I know a lot of lawyers don't do tax preparation. So I just started doing it, even though it was, okay, it's going to be many hours, but I just have to do it. From there, I started getting into more sales tax preparation. And that's kind of where I saw that, okay, there's a huge need because we're doing so many things manually. How do I not do this anymore? How do I speed this up? Because it's taking forever to do five things. So that's when I started to look into different technologies. And like you said, a lot of the law and even tax professional careers is very traditional and it's very not as much open to chain, but Something they do love is not spending billable hours on something. And so I was like, this is where I'm going to make sure I automate a lot of this work so that I can make an impact. After a certain point, I was like, okay, we're making a lot of big impacts, but I wasn't growing. I was just like, I just don't have enough technological knowledge. There's no one here that has that knowledge to teach me more. And that's when I know, that's why I felt like I needed to shift into a technological company. And I got to Bloomberg. Thank you, Margaret. I got to thank her more every single day that I'm here. And actually, when I got here, like I thought I was going to pursue that like technological knowledge and growing in my Python skills and coding skills and things like that. But in fact, I was like, oh, there's actually needs that are just more than that. There's more skills that I can develop. And here, like I said before, stumbling, I was just like, oh, I actually really enjoy talking to people, project management, yeah, presentations and things like that. So I started to fill those needs while I was here. Sometimes I'm like, should I get back into technical work? I go back and forth. But right now, it's, yeah, I'm just, I feel more free, I guess, to pursue the interests that I had. So that's kind of like my vision of marketability. That's changed a lot. First, it was like, yeah, definitely market yourself. And then now it's more, like, what am I interested in? What are the needs here? And do they like combine? Before Margaret chimes in about her experiences, there's so much. I mean, I feel like we can have a whole episode just of this, because first of all, from where I sit, tax is one of the least diverse sectors in law, and it comes up 
all the time. Tax folks, they calling me being like, do you know any diverse people? And I'm just like, this is not how it works. <laughs> like, I'm not your hotline for getting more diversity into your uh, group. Like, you need to actually recruit and retain people and train them. So I think it's so interesting. The idea of marketability that you've laid out here, and I'm going to paraphrase it and feel free to push back. What I'm hearing is, how do I add value? Period. Like, whatever your work is, wherever you are, one way to make yourself marketable is figuring out how you can add value that is unique to you, meet a need, and create value. And I think that is such important advice because you can use that anywhere. Right. That is how you make yourself relevant anywhere. And I just wanted to like say that out loud for the people in the back in case they missed it. And I'm going to hand it over to Margaret. Thanks. I love hearing Sam talk about marketability and really embrace the journey he's been on and what it looks like. Feel free to do the technology, Sam. I'm all in and supportive. But when I hear marketability and when I think of what Sam's journey has been on in my own, it's the story that we tell. And so I think marketability changes depending on who we're telling the story to. When I tell it internally, it's one version. When I tell it externally, it's one version. In my personal life, it's probably a third or fourth version. And I use it to say, let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you about my group. Let me tell you about the products I support. Let me tell you about our business. Let me tell you about the company. And I think that right now has encompassed a lot of the marketability that I think about because it's about me, but it's also about a lot of other things. And that's how my stories develop. And so depending on when and who and how I'm telling it, I'm marketing myself differently so that people understand me and what we do. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. It's definitely audience-based because it's going to definitely change based on who you're, who you're speaking with. It's just so interesting that we are talking about marketability because it is, again, almost retrospective. What is a story that happened after you reflected on where you've been? So we've danced around it, but we have yet to actually dive into what it is that you do. What does your day-to-day -day look like? Yeah, of course. I will start what I do as an analyst on the team and what the day-to-day -day kind of looks like. We are a team of all practicing attorneys or prior practicing attorneys. And I think to do that sales pitch, we are building machines and models that are going to assist attorneys do their job, do their maybe automate their day-to-day work, -day workflow or make their job a little bit easier or whatever that takes. And what does that look like? It looks like one, it might be creating data that we can give these machines so that they can learn properly. There's a term like called like garbage in, garbage out. So we don't want to give these machines bad data or else they're not going to learn well. And so a lot of it, yeah, it's just sitting there creating data. What that means is if we want to pull certain things out of like a contract, what is the good data that comes out of a contract? What do attorneys really want to see? Um, same thing if, if it's like a complaint or a brief or things like that. Um, another part of our job is if machine, if these machines learn something and then now they spit out something, is that thing actually good or bad? And we have to properly rate the output of what these machines provide so that the engineers can change their algorithms, change their code so that the machines constantly grow and get better. All of that is, I guess, can be encapsulated in this, what we call fine tuning. It's very, it's it's a lot. Yeah, I know. But so the name of the game right now is, is fine tuning. And now that we have things like called chat GPT, what we call large language models, are these really viable solutions to the problems that attorneys encounter? If they are, how are we supposed to use it? And so our team, so my team, Margaret's team, we're working to see the viability of these machines, train these machines, put them into our platform so that they can look so that attorneys are finding things better, developing their own things better, writing their own documents and things like that better, and cut down a lot of time. So in a nutshell, that's what we do. <laughs> so Sam has the cool job. I, as a manager, I do strategy. I think about our customers. I think about our people. 
I think about the process. I pay bills. As I said, Sam really has the cool job here. It is interfacing with the engineers every day. It's talking about the technology. It's talking about our data. It's really exploring how do we make our customers the best they can be um, at their jobs. And I'm here to guide, manage, mentor, but yeah, mine's not the cool job. Sam, you touched on your role with machine learning, uh, kind of put garbage in, get garbage out. So speaking of garbage, how do you navigate biases in machine learning and how do you mitigate the impact of those biases if and when they surface? This is actually, I mean, let me preface this by saying, I think this in itself can be like a PhD topic. So I'll give you my take on it. I think, as I was mentioning before, like the GPT models, these large language models, the, we are testing the viability of these models in an attorney's daily workflow. And right now, these models are taking whatever is on the internet and then giving you an answer. And we can see how that can be problematic because if, I mean, we all know information on the internet can be wonky. So how do we give it good data? So I think that's the first part. What does it mean to give good data to these machines so they can learn properly? I think creating that good data kind of leads to the second layer issue, which is because we, as the attorneys that are creating this good data, we can have our own uncon unconscious bias. Right. And so I think the most important part of creating this type of data is having one, a diverse group of people and not only a diverse group of people and culture and things like that, but also subject matter as well. So that people are able to see the data, not from only the perspective that they know, but from perspective that they won't know at all. So if someone asks me, because I was a tax subject matter expert, what is an income tax and like, why is it important? it'll be really important me, for me to describe it in a very objective and factual way. And so we are creating this good data, but we, we, need, we need diversity. We need different groups of people, different ways we think to create that data. And then the last part is there's actually a lot of studies that have shown that these machines uncover a lot of these unconscious uh, biases as well. So once we get to a place where the machines are functioning to a certain level, they actually do a pretty good job of, yeah, finding the biases even when we answer these questions. For example, let's say we want to create questions that attorneys usually ask, like, what is a motion to dismiss and things like that. I think sometimes as humans, we will ask very specific questions, like, why is the tree green and then planted in the ground? And then why, what, like, why there are roots and things like that. But these machines actually are creating way more general questions that attorneys would be able to use. It's it conceptually seeing things beyond what a human would see. Let's say it would just be like more, how do I explain it? More straightforward versus an attorney that loves very spe specific details and things like that. So there's just been a lot of these machines just uncovering the biases that humans might make mistakes on. It's kind of like a two-pronged approach, create good data, but also test the data that's being created. So that's kind of how we would mitigate bias. Again, just a quick take on it. I think there is a lot more, like many more layers and complexities that can go into it, but we are not stopping here. We're going to continue to iterate and continue to develop these machines. That is really fascinating. And it's interesting because I've only ever heard people talk about the way that AI currently reflects the bias that we put into it. That's where it comes from. It comes from our own biases, which they're everywhere. It's everywhere. Our society was built on a lot of inequity. And so those biases are really strong. Um, but this idea that it can uncover biases is fascinating to me. And maybe we'll have to invite you guys back to have a conversation on that. Is there a way or are you trying to program or input DEI guiding principle? Because that's how we deal with it on a human front. And we haven't done a great job with that historically or institutionally, and especially in the legal profession. Like I literally put on a CLE last year that was all about how as an industry, as a profession, we have not adopted even the basic best practices of DEI. For instance, some of the guiding principles you may have heard of are like do no harm, 
is usually number one. Amplify the most marginalized voices to create a balance in how we look at things. Are there efforts to incorporate that framework or a framework that can help suss out biases or counteract biases when they are introduced? I think the first part is one, we are still in that incubation viability phase. We don't know exactly where these machines can go. So we are just testing, can it go? And I actually think a part of the DEI work and knowledge that comes into all of this, that's why it's so important to impact the people that are actually working on these projects. For example, the engineers at the end of the day are responsible for creating the code. I think we, we do have a few engineers on our team that are like constantly thinking about DEI and are these machines recognizing the importance and impact of this. But we don't have like all engineers aren't. This isn't on the top of all engineers' minds. I think ultimately we first need to impact the people who are developing these, like this code. And then from there, we'll ask and we can put in checks. Have we thought about these? Because if it doesn't come from there in internally, then we they might not even understand when we go to check them are like, is this an issue and it's not an issue? So it sounds like a way someone with a certain skill set could add value even to this is having that DEI foundational knowledge and best practices, which is like a whole industry in and of itself. So those of you DEI lawyers out there, listen up, Bloomberg needs you. So what is it that allows lawyers slash attorneys to be able to do this work? I I mean, if I want to put it like, kind of like comically, I feel like the best part of the, about being an attorney is you can kind of smell if something's like fishy. Something is suspicious here. And I think that's the skepticism we kind of want with all of the work that we do. If I were to put it realistically, it's spotting issues, spotting those gaps, finding the solutions to them. And it's not just taking someone's word for it, but really stepping back and being like, okay, I don't know why, but there's something missing here. I will need to dig into why this isn't, there's something missing here. And then that's the skills that most attorneys have, right? Like a client comes to ask us a question. We have no idea. So we start to dig into it. We research, we give them the answer. Hopefully it's the right answer. And then the administrative part stuff happens. But yeah, I think that's the problem solving skills, the spawning issues is the most important part of everything we do. The technical stuff, data analysis, you can learn it. It's kind of similar to Microsoft Word. When you draft something, we do the job. But it's really the critical thinking that's the most important part. I love that you bring out the issue spotting as a skill set that lawyers are very well trained in because it's true. And neuroscience kind of supports this. What you practice grows stronger. And lawyers practice issue spotting a lot. Right. (laughs) We're too good at it sometimes. In fact, we had a whole other episode about how if you bring that aspect of your training and of your brain to other aspects of your life, you're going to live a very unhappy life. And it's like part of taking care of yourself, your mental health, your physical health, your well-being in general as a lawyer means knowing when to shut off the issue spotting. If you're always issue spotting at home with your friends and family, you're not that fun to be around. I know this might be the first time some of you hear this. You're welcome. But yeah, like when you can hone in on that skill and use it for something like this, that's where the magic happens, where you can take that skill and put it somewhere else. So it's really helpful. So we are rounding up this conversation now, and I wanted to just open it up before we ask any final questions. If there's anything either of you would like to share or something that we didn't cover about finding an alternative career path or, or what a career path at Bloomberg using these skills could be if we haven't already mentioned it. I can go. And I think it's taking a risk and being confident that it's okay to take a risk. I think that's something that lawyers aren't great at. And risk-taking is really important when you think about your career and embracing it and realizing that one decision, taking a new step, doesn't totally alter everything you've ever done. You can find a path. And I think the risk-taking is really important. Risk-taking and issue spotting go hand in hand. 
Pouring it to the converse. I mean, one of the lawyers are also some of the most risk-averse people mm-hmm. because we spot all the issues. That is, I mean, a perfect example of why you need to be able to think outside of your training. But that is a really great point and being able to take the leap when you do see an opportunity. Mary Ellen, Angie, do you guys have any final questions? I have one. Uh, You've both already shared tidbits on how you happened upon your careers today, but can you share how you recognized and navigated feeling stuck in your careers beforehand? And you don't have to shout out your beforehand places of work. And what did you do to turn it around and leave us off with some advice on are there ways that young professionals can make their way into this field more directly than stumbling into it? Sure, I can go. When I had a traditional job as a lawyer, one day I was at an offsite job looking at something and I just took a step back and looked at myself and said, what are you doing? You can't do this anymore. This is not for you. This is not who you are. So I immediately went home and applied for jobs. And then my second job, I looked at it and I said, is this what you want to do? And the answer was no. I liked it, but not enough. And it wasn't for me. And when I came to Bloomberg, I wasn't sure really really where I would end up. I thought I'd come for a year. And again, as I said, I've been here a long time. And part of it is time just kind of goes. And then when you're challenged and engaged, it really leads to the next thing. Or once I finish this project, maybe I'll move on. But that project leads to another project, leads to another project, and you're still here. And I think that's the sort of career and opportunity that we offer. How to come here more directly. Hopefully these types of conversations where people remind students that Traditional can look different. Traditional can be different. Non-traditional isn't as scary as everyone says, and it can be really fulfilling. And I think it's important for people to recognize not practicing isn't like the total end. You didn't fail as a lawyer just if you don't practice. And I think that comes with a lot of it. But I do think the risk-taking, being confident, and recognizing like your skill set and what you want to do. A lot of questioning myself has led to this. And I think it's important that people really say, what do I want to do? Where do I want to be? Does this make me happy? And alternative careers are not a failure. They're actually a success. Yeah, I think I agree with Margaret on that 100%. For me, I think self-reflection is really important. Just overall, maybe I self-reflect too much sometimes, but I think it's okay if you want to be in a traditional law firm, go up the ladder, all that stuff. I think there is a point at a person's life where you're just like, is, yeah, is this worth it? Is this what I want to do? And I think that's kind of the stuck feeling I encountered was like working, let's say 70 hours a week. Is this a life that I want? Even if it's as simple as that, or is there something new I want to learn that I haven't learned? So I agree with Margaret's point before as well, taking that risk. At the end of the day, we did take a risk to come to where we are today. It was very, I had a lot of anxiety. I was like, what am I doing? Is this right? Are people going to care that I'm not a lawyer? And like all those thoughts. But at the end of the day, I'm way happier now than I was happier before. And I've learned way more things now than I learned before. And I think another thing that Margaret said that I really enjoyed is I love listening to people's stories now, right? to be like, oh, how did you navigate this? Um, And it's something that I do now more than I did before. So if, especially if I meet someone new, I'm just like, especially in Bloomberg, where it's, yeah, how did you get here? Like you've been here for 10 years, 20 years. What have you learned? What have you like, you're, let's say you're still in the same role. Like why have you stayed in the same role? I feel like so many people have so many different stories that can be one unique to them, but also like relatable to you. So I think, yeah, just reflection, risk-taking, reaching out people, things like that. Thank you both for being here and sharing all your insights and what you do. This has been a really amazing episode. I appreciate everything you just shared right now too. And I, it's so much of what both of you shared resonates with me thinking about how I want to spend this one precious life. And it was not 
70 hours in front of a screen, miserable. Like I have two kids. I do yoga. I run. I walk. I eat all meals at my kitchen, like table, which is who knew that's what I wanted. I know. Now I know. And so thank you both for sharing all of that. I think that having this conversation is so important for the future and thanks for leading the way. So with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Bloomberg and welcome back to D for the People. We're here to curate a selection of literature, media, and discussions that cast a spotlight on all things deep for your feed. It's about embracing diverse voices, stories, and perspectives to foster an inclusive community. Mary Ellen, can you start us off? Thanks, Angie. My deep for the People recommendation this time is Little Justice Leaders, an educational account on Instagram aimed at parents and educators interacting with kids K through six. This account breaks down social justice concepts and current events in a way that's easy for kids to understand. But it doesn't end there. You can use these talking points with anyone just getting acquainted with social justice or even someone resistant to change. I'm a firm believer that you don't truly understand a concept until you can break it down to a five-year-old. And that account does just that. Little Justice Leaders brings book recommendations, mini courses, talking guides, and full-on snail mail learning kits into your space on your time tackling topical issues like combating Islamophobia and anti-Semitism to more general conversations like allyship and basic media literacy. Even as a DEI practitioner, I find myself learning how to describe a problem differently or frame a solution in a new light. You're never too old or too experienced to shift your point of view, and you're never too young to start learning. There's an age-appropriate way to have all of the quote-unquote difficult conversations, and little justice leaders will help you get there. I'm going to throw it back to Angie. What do you have for us? So today, my deep for the feed, deep for the people is Oscar nominated film, A Night in Miami with director Regina King. It came out in 2020 and A Night in Miami is set in 1963 with four iconic figures, Cassius Clay, or more commonly known as Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X. They all meet in Miami after Cassius Clay's historic boxing victory before he became Muhammad Ali. Uh, And they have a conversation where they are confronting their roles in the civil rights movement, clash over personal ideologies, and navigate the complexities of racial identity, and what's the best approach to really flex their influence. So this is a fictional conversation. There's no proof that this happened. There's some rumors and speculations that it did. But so much of the conversations that were happening back in 1963 are still happening to this day. And it really resonates. So I really encourage everyone to watch it. It's a great film. Regina King is an amazing director. Uh, she's, a hidden, she's a hidden talent that really doesn't get the respect that she needs. So that's my, that's my D for the feed. And I'm going to throw it over to Tanya. I agree. I am a big stan of Regina King. And I mean, can we please give her her flowers? If if we listed all the things she's done and worked on, we would run out of time. Like, she's just amazing. You know, if, if you're not familiar with Regina King, please do your research. I mean, it, it's a perfect segue into what um, my deep for the people is. So my deep for the people is actually uh, ESPN 30 for 30 short that just came out um, in the last couple of months. I think it was released in November and it's called Black Girls Play, the Story of Hand Games. Like I said, it's a short, so it's only 20 minutes long and I highly recommend it. It is a love letter to black little girls and is the perfect example of black girl magic. I mean, my heart is literally swelling talking about it and thinking about it. This film touched me in so many ways because as I've shared in the past, I grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood. And so these hand games make me feel so nostalgic for my childhood and all the things that they represent for me. And I I can't even imagine, you know, what they might mean for so many others. And if you're thinking, what the hell do hand games have to do with me? Just wait and see. I mean, these hand games that were created, again, 
mostly by black little girls historically have spanned generations are a cultural phenomenon that survived slavery and influences culture in America and the world. The documentary goes into a lot more detail that I'm going into right now, but there's so much research and data around how these games survived slavery and actually brought so much of the culture and community building aspects of dance, hand games, and things that we would normally find um, in many countries and cultures in Africa still today even. And so, you know, it's a great way for people to connect, to do something fun, to share love. It allows people to foster community and working collectively and collaboratively, while also still allowing individuals to be unique and to shine within their talents. And that's just one aspect of, of these hand games. And, you know, you can see the influences of these hand games, whether it's the rhythm, the beats, the actual words. Um, you, we can see them and hear them in hip hop, in many cultural dances, especially like popular dances in, in the U.S. And of course, TikTok. Like there's a direct connection to all these little TikTok dances that live within a perfect rectangle or square and these hand games. And so I, I just have to emphasize this, this short is a love letter to black little girls. It's finally giving them their flowers. And if you ever played Numbers or Miss Mary Mac or Down Down Baby, Down Down the Roller Coaster, you have these wonderful, amazing black little girls to thank for it. Please check it out. It's definitely worthwhile. And that's what I have. So passing it back to you. So let's recap. Mary Ellen shared an Instagram account that you should follow, Little Justice Leaders. Tani shared the ESPN short, Black Girls Play. And I shared A Night in Miami, a film directed by Regina King. We highly suggest you go out, follow the Instagram account, watch the ESPN short. It's only 20 minutes. And watch A Night in Miami. It's a great night for a movie night. Let's hear from you. Have you come across a book that reshaped your worldview? a movie that stirred impactful conversations, or a documentary that unveiled new realities, share it with us. Please send all submissions to buildingbelonging at nycbar.org. Together, let's make waves and propel positive change. Until next time, keep building belonging in every space. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Belonging. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you listen. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. Be sure to check out This Lawyer's Life, a professional development podcast where we talk with lawyers about seizing opportunities, learning lessons the hard way, and about what makes them tick. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.